Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, how do you know if you're over-explaining cyber to your agency's leadership? One of those scissors mentioned to me, said, if I talk longer than five minutes, I know I failed. Time for some teeth in the president's management agenda. Setting out agendas and sending out guidance is really important, but there does need to be some accountability. And a watchdog's eye on performance data at your agency. We'll go into some select agencies and look at specific programs and what are they doing to try to build and develop and use evidence. It's Monday, November 15th, 2021. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity Talent Management System is up and running today. Employees the agency hires through the system will join the DHS Cybersecurity Service. DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas says the system will, quote, fundamentally reimagine how the agency hires and retains cyber talent. Fourteen citizen-facing digital service projects, the General Services Administration, will get money from the agency's part of the American Rescue Plan Act. GSA will use best practices from its 10X program to manage the projects. You can find a list of the 14 projects at fedscoop.com. Hackers have penetrated the Federal Bureau of Investigation's Law Enforcement Enterprise Portal. The agency says the hackers used the portal to send spam emails, but the agency says the hackers didn't, quote, access or compromise any data or PII on the FBI's network. You can read more about these stories and many others at fedscoop.com. The director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, Jen Easterly, is just one of the leading government cyber experts that will join me at the Palo Alto Network's Public Sector Ignite Virtual Conference this Thursday, November 18th. I hope you'll join me, too. You'll learn about key cybersecurity issues impacting agencies like Zero Trust and Endpoint Detection and Response. You can see the agenda and sign up now at ignite.paloaltonetworks.com. The Defense Department could have three or more vendors competing for one of its biggest contracts ever. Google Cloud says it would like to compete for the successor to the Pentagon's Jedi Cloud contract. John Zangardi is president of Red Horse. He's former acting chief information officer at DOD, former Navy CIO, and former CIO at the Department of Homeland Security. John, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. The core there is diversity in the base of vendors providing a service, whether it's cloud service, cybersecurity, whatever. You're writing about cybersecurity diversity recently. Um, why is that important, and are we making a big deal enough about spreading it around? Welcome, John. Hey, Francis. It's been quite a while since we connected. Yeah, I think it's really important to make sure that we have diversity in our vendor base. One, it's competition. Two, if something fails, right, you have something else to fall back on. You know, there's an old example out there called the Maginot Line, right? It didn't work too well when the strategy changed. So bringing it around to cyber. You know, if you're linked into a software monoculture where you're heavily dependent upon one vendor, and SolarWinds show this, this, you become extraordinarily vulnerable. You really want to start thinking and realize that, hey, this is all about risk management. No product is foolproof. The Maginot line was not foolproof. And really, you want to start leveraging pure play cybersecurity vendors or products. You want to remove those single points of failures and consider endpoint security, identity, asset management, and zero trust with the goal and objective being 
hey, to meet the mark with the cybersecurity executive orders through redundancy and resilience. And you get that from multiple vendors. You wrote recently, redundancies build into complex systems such as aircraft, but there's risk with over-reliance on one vendor for cybersecurity. What does successful redundancy look like in a cyber construct, in a cyber architecture, John? Well, you know, it's a lot easier when you think about an aircraft, Francis, because, you know, as, as a former aviator, you could easily say that, well, if I have one backup hydraulic system, I'm good to go, right? That risk has been mitigated of one failing. So what I would encourage CISOs and CIOs and the federal government or highly regulated industries or just industry in general is to look at the panoply of products that you have on your network that are providing you your cybersecurity and begin considering the risk that is inherent in each. Consider the interdependencies. How well do they work together? Are they changing with the threat as the threat evolves? We can't expect the threat to remain the same in the long run. APTs, the bad guys, bad actors, whatever you want to call them, they evolve. They're always looking for the weakest link. So we constantly need to be looking at our risk management posture to determine, hey, what is the best products to have in place to provide the security to protect that important data that is vital to our national security. It's vital to our industry. It's vital to, to the continuity of government. You wrote uh, recently, there are ways to reduce the risk of software monoculture. When I think of the word culture, that to me, transcends technology, and that implies a more serious problem if the culture's not healthy. Is that what you were getting at by using that term, John? Well, in a way, Francis, um, you know, it, it, it is, as a CIO at government, you have a lot of things coming at you every day. It's a challenging job. In fact, I've been known to tell my people when I was in government positions that when you're a CIO, you know you're doing okay when no one complains to you, right? But no <laughs> one thanks you. <laughs> But the, the problem with anything is, is it's, it's easy to pick the easy solution. It's harder to pick a more challenging solution. And if you think about not having dependency on a single group of vendors, a single vendor, it's harder to piece together other pieces and do the work, do the hard nug work to determine what is the best series of products to deploy across your network to ensure security. So it's not that culture's poor. It's just that I think, you know, with all that's going on every day for a CIO or a CISO, sometimes it's easy just to pick the easy solution. And I haven't even talked about budget problems, which may force you to make decisions in a way that you may not want to. Yeah, the budget issue is really unfortunate, especially as we're in a an environment now, John, where people are talking about the possibility of a continuing resolution for the entire rest of the fiscal year that could just really put the crimp on anybody who's trying to change what they're doing now. Figuring out how to pay for that change would strike me as being a lot harder than trying to build the strategy or even change a culture as hard as that is. Is that a fair observation, do you think? Yeah, Francis, I think it's a fair observation. Uh, quite frankly, a continuing resolution, period, is bad. A continuing resolution for an entire fiscal year is terrible. It, it creates additional management overhead for anyone who's trying to develop a program, deploy a program, keep things running. And it's it's just hard on your people. Um, our legislators have a responsibility to get a budget out on time. It would be amazing if a budget was available on the 1st of October every year. <laughs> it would be amazing. And based on the track record of the last 
decades, extraordinarily unlikely. Um, you've got yeah. six things in this piece that you write about to reduce the risk of software monoculture. I'm going to buzz through them because we're almost out of time. Recognize that no product is foolproof. Two, avoid homogeneity and security by leveraging a portfolio of pure play cyber vendors. Three, remove single points of failure. Four, get identity right. Five, begin deploying endpoint security measures and zero trust. Six, be diverse. I think the two of those that are maybe the most important based on the conversations I've had with you and your peers are the shortest ones, according to your writing. Four, get identity right, and six, be diverse. Those are the, the probably the biggest deals on that entire list, aren't they, John? Hey, Francis, I totally agree with you. Uh, one of the problems that CIOs have in CISOs, I met with some highly regulated uh, industry CISOs a couple weeks ago, and uh, explaining what you're doing is one of the hardest things. So how do you explain to the C-suite or the secretary or deputy secretary that this is important? And one of those CISOs mentioned to me, says, if I talk longer than five minutes, I know I failed, right? So being able to explain why identity is a fundamental that you need to get right is, is really a hard task. And it, it falls upon the shoulders of CIOs and CISOs to justify efforts they're taking in that way and to, to buck up why that budgetary money is in there to, to, to accelerate a movement to a new identity structure. It's completely important. Same thing for zero trust. John Zangardi, it's great to talk to you. Thanks for the time today. Have a great day, Francis. You can find a link to what John's writing in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. New guidance to Circular A11 from the Office of Management and Budget calls on agencies to think differently about the citizens they serve, their agency's customers. The Biden administration's placed an emphasis on equity that some observers think will show up in the administration's president's management agenda. Kathy Conrad's director of digital government at Accenture. She's former deputy administrator of the Office of Citizen Services and Innovative Technology at the General Services Administration. Kathy, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What are you watching when it comes to this concepts of diversity, equity, and inclusion that agencies are thinking about a lot more as a result of this administration's priorities? Welcome. Thank you. Yeah, I think federal CX leaders can and should play a strategic role in strengthening equity. And what I expect to see, and I think the Biden administration recognizes that improving customer experience is critical to restoring trust in government and in strengthening equity. What I find interesting, Kathy, is we're talking about the term equity. This is a more existential question, I guess, than technical. For years, we talked about diversity and inclusion in the federal workforce. And now the word equity is included in that. And not just the, within the workforce itself, but in the way that the workforce provides services to citizens. What's driving that and what difference does incorporating that word and that concept mean to the kind of work that you're doing and the kind of work that you're watching the federal government do, Kathy? So I think, and I think that's a really astute observation. It's not just about making sure that um, services reach people who are diverse. It's about making sure that everyone who is eligible to participate in federal services has an equitable opportunity to do so. And so a common challenge is listening to engaging and designing around the needs of all potential customers, not just those that you know or can most easily reach. And often we find that underrepresented populations and communities in customer research 
um, just aren't heard. And that's critical to be able to understand barriers more deeply. So you've got three steps that you and Lauren advise federal leaders to take to move in the right direction on serving everybody. The first Mm -hmm. one that you write is conducting more inclusive customer research. What does that look like? And how do you think agencies are doing now at doing that very thing? So, so I think, as I said, it means not just going to the customers who you already engage with, but making extra effort to reach those who may not be aware of the services that government offers, or for various reasons, including distrust in government, may not um, may not have have may not be participating in, and and it means identifying those barriers. So, for example, Social Security and IRS found that many people have been unable to set up online accounts. And by doing more inclusive research, they found that there are many people who don't actually have the documents that are needed to verify their identity, like credit credit history or mortgage information. And so both of those agencies are piloting new programs that provide other options, like using driver license or utility bills to be able to set up those kinds of personalized accounts that deliver a much more kind of proactive and personalized experience than traditional you know, being able to interact just over the phone or in person. One of the reasons, email. one of the reasons I love talking to you, Kathy, is because you answer my questions sometimes before I ask them. And my question there was going to be, what's the role of the agency when a, a citizen can't do what it needs to do, what he or she needs to do? What's the role of the agency to help that? And and that's exactly right. Just thinking differently strikes me as thinking creatively strikes me as the solution there. Is it as simple as that? I, I wish it were that simple. Um, so that's certainly you have to think creatively. But in order to do that, first of all, you need um, you need inclusive design teams who understand what unconscious bias they may bring to program or policy design. And you need to, to really think hard and reach out to those people who you may not even recognize aren't participating. So that means kind of two things. One is that has proven to be very effective is partnering with community-based organizations who are trusted and can help agencies engage with people whom they need to reach. Uh, USDA, HUD, many agencies are finding that to be very successful. And the second thing is in really looking at the data to understand who you are and who you aren't reaching. All right. Data is part of the second step also, and that is uh, you and Lauren, right, to use data more effectively. How so? So some agencies have been reluctant or unable to collect demographic data because of privacy concerns. But you really need to have that data to understand who you're reaching, who you're not reaching, and potentially why and what you might do about it. So agencies should should, should use the data they have, and ideally, they should be able to combine that data with other available data, like from census or labor or USA spending to get a more complete picture. And one of the challenges is that right now there are data restriction sharing restrictions that often prevent agencies from, from doing just that. The third step that you and Lauren write about is building organizational capacity. And I note that you write the stakes for improving equity are too high to be an other duty as a sign. We've seen that many times, you and I, in our experience in watching and in your case, working in the government. Um, Do you worry that building capacity might become that where it's a job that's tacked on 
uh, to something that somebody else does, this idea of equity, and doesn't get the full focus of a human or a number of humans inside a particular organization? Uh, yeah, I, I think it's important that there be dedicated resources and and specialized expertise to be able to really tackle this problem. In the research that we did with the Partnership for Public Service, we found that CX leaders recognize the need to be more inclusive, but often lack the resources to fully implement it. Um, you know, equity has to be built in from policies to program and system design to implementation. I think about it the same way we thought about security a couple of years ago, where, you know, we need to bake it in, not bolt it on. And in order to bake it in, you need that expertise, um, both within agencies and with the partners who agencies are working with. We talked a little bit before we went on the air about the forthcoming president's management agenda. That, I think, is going to be the framing document, kind of the culmination of all of these executive orders and the uh, directives and so on of various policymaking organizations at the top of the administration are doing. What will you look for in that document to indicate if these steps will be easier for agencies to take or maybe should become higher priorities for agencies to take anything like that, Kathy? So I think we'll look for uh, accountability, of course, because setting out agendas and sending out guidance is really important, but there does need to be some accountability. And my understanding is that uh, responsibility and focus on CX is rising to the level of the president's management agenda particularly with a focus on cross-agency journeys and priority life events, which I think is really critical to improve the end-to-end -end experience and the sort of sum total of interactions that people have with government. If you improve experience like one website or one call center, one touch point at a time, and you don't bring in an overall focus, um, you make incremental progress, not transformational change. So, so that, and then I'd also hope to see an emphasis on proactively serving customers by integrating channels and and services, not just across uh, not just across customer journeys, but even within customer journeys, so that you can better use intelligent systems to anticipate what customer needs and meet their needs before they ever have to reach out for help. You and your colleagues are continuing this conversation, pushing it forward. How do you want to do that? So we're, tomorrow, uh, with the Partnership for Public Service, we are releasing a major report that profiles experience with 15 high-impact service providers. We'll have our Customer Experience Summit tomorrow, and I hope we'll draw attention to the connection between customer experience, equity, and trust. Because if you look at those things together, I think you can really see the potential and the vision for transforming government to really uh, be, be relentlessly focusing on customers and designed around customer needs. Kathy Conrad, great to talk to you as always, my friend. Thanks for coming on. And thank you for having me. You can find a link to what Kathy's writing with Lauren DeYoung Shulman of the Partnership for Public Service in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. The leader of the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Accreditation Body has a new worry. The leader of that body, Matthew Travis, is on tomorrow's show. He'll talk about his worry. That Daily Scoop podcast debuts Tuesday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows.
Agency managers say they're using data to make decisions more than ever. 16 out of 24 agencies reported what the Government Accountability Office calls statistically significant increases in performance data use. Alyssa Siz is Acting Director of Strategic Issues at GAO. Alyssa, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What did you look at and how did you look at it as far as how agencies are using data to make decisions? Welcome. Thanks, Francis. It's nice to be here. Yes, so this is part of our our periodic federal manager survey. So as you know, periodically GAO surveys about 4,000 federal managers across 24 major agencies. We've been doing this since 1997, every few years or so. This is the latest results from our 2020 survey. So of 24 agencies, we ask federal managers about a variety of activities that they're, they're doing, including what we're reporting on here is how much are they using performance information, which is part of a broader suite of evidence um, in decisions for their programs and their perceptions of how well their agencies are doing this. Uh, So uh, the results of this latest survey are really encouraging. Um, In fact, they're the highest since we started doing this survey uh, way back in 1997. Um, As you mentioned, 16 of the 24 agencies, we saw increases in in managers reporting increased use of of performance information in decision making. So this looks like a positive trend. What is driving that? Did did the research that you did indicate that or is it just the fact that Uh, You mentioned in this work, uh, Gipper Modernization Act 2010, Foundations for Evidence-Based Policymaking Act 2018. Is that the impetus of it or do we know? So I think it's a few things, and it's definitely those two pieces of legislation that you alluded to. So the GPRA Modernization Act, which was passed in 2010, really updated a performance management framework for the federal government and really emphasized the use of data-driven decision-making. And then more recently, the Foundations for Evidence-Based Policymaking Act of 2019 kind of built upon that, right, and had agencies really think carefully about how they are going to develop and use evidence to drive decisions. So I think we are seeing um, some positive results from from those pieces of legislation. Um, But also agencies and OMB have been focused on this. OMB has emphasized the the need to drive decisions using information um, and has taken some actions in that area to encourage agencies to do so. Same with the Performance Improvement Council which is an interagency council set up to improve government management. So there's a variety of things that I think have led to what we're seeing as an increase in information for decisions. What do we know about two particular areas of the way data is being used to make decisions, uh, Alyssa? At what level uh, has the decision-making, the data-driven decision-making process uh, risen Is it happening at the very highest levels of agency and then permeating throughout the organization? And what kinds of decisions are people using data to make now? Are are they the really meaty decisions that organizations have to make, or are they still kind of the more fundamental, more basic blocking, tackling type things? What do we know about either of those, Alyssa? Right, great question. So, so the GPRA Modernization Act requires agencies to do these data-driven reviews. So these are reviews 
of high, high agency priority goals, right? Um, so agency leaders drive these reviews for certain um, goals within, within agencies. We asked in our survey about managers, if, if they were, if their program was part of one of those high level data-driven reviews, were, was the agency using information to drive decision-making? And we saw overwhelmingly positive results there. So when top agency management is driving these reviews, then we see more positive results of using information. We also asked federal managers about specific activities, like are they using performance information when they're setting program strategies, or when they're thinking about allocating resources, or when they're thinking about communicating the results of their programs. Um, and those were areas where we did see an increase where uh, uh, managers were reporting increased use of information for those types of activities as well. You mentioned this is an ongoing work and you have a, a graph in this, uh, in this report about uh, the data as far back as 2007. And I mentioned at the beginning, this is the highest uh, response level ever for uh, managers to indicate that they're using data for uh, making decisions. How will you continue to track this moving forward to see how this progresses and to see that this momentum continues, Alyssa? Right, so I think it's important to note, like while we saw positive results, this was a survey. So this is perceptions of managers and what's happening in federal agencies. Perceptions are very important. Um, so we, we think, you know, this is important information to have, but we have ongoing work that we're starting now in response to some mandates in the Evidence Act, where we'll go into some select agencies and look at specific programs and what are they doing to try to build and develop and use evidence? How are they training employees and managers? Do they have the tools and the capacity in place to really make meaningful um, strides in this area? And then also one of the key provisions in the Evidence Act is due for agencies in 2022. They have to submit plans on how they're going to develop and use evidence, and that's part of their strategic plan. So we'll be looking at those plans as well. So I think we'll be able to get behind these and see what's going on in specific agencies very soon. We'll be fascinating to track all of that. Alyssa, thanks very much for coming on the program. Thanks for having me, Francis. You can find a link to Alyssa's work in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C., James Mahoney helps me do the show every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The future of CMMC at the Pentagon with Matthew Travis on Tuesday's show. Until then, I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.